In your Bibles, would you please to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10? Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We will be looking at verse 24 here today. It's been a couple of weeks now since we've been in the book of Hebrews, and so I want to take a few minutes to get ourselves back into the Hebrews mindset, shall we? But before we do, let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for this glorious day. Lord, we rejoice in this day because this is the day that you have made. And Lord, it is a day where the saints gather together, Lord, to worship you, to learn, Lord, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to open up your word of truth, to fellowship together, and to love Father, may our hearts and our minds be open to your wonderful truth. May, Lord, may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. For your honor and your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You will remember from last week that the author of Hebrews knows that there's many who are sitting in the congregation who have professed Christ, but they're not yet all in. They've made a profession, but they're not yet all in. And he wants them to know that it's decision time. It's go time. It's time to quit straddling the fence. They've come to a fork in the road, and as Yogi Berra would say, they need to take it. Came to a fork in the road, I took it. It's time to quit straddling the fence. It's time for action. And verses 19 to 25 are meant to be an encouragement to those who are on the fence, to those who have made a profession but just don't want to go all the way in. Remember, their toes, like the sprinter, are as close to the line as they can. They're leaning forward. Just don't want to go through that gate. Because they know if they do, that the world, that the way they've been living in this world, the way that they understand this world, will change. And that the Lord will change them. And there will be a cost involved. And so they don't want to take that step. And so he wants to show them in verses 19 to 25 what a true believer looks like. This is what it looks like when you're all in. This is what it looks like when you go all the way through the narrow gate and live your life for the Lord. So let's begin just a quick review of verses 19 to 21. And he lays the foundation then for verses 22 to 25. Just refresh ourselves. In verse 19, there he says, Therefore, brethren, therefore, based on everything that he's been talking about, about Christ as the great high priest and all that he has done and the sacrifice he's given, how that's opened up the veil, all of that. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So in verse 19, this confidence is one of those defining characteristics of saving faith. You know what you believe. You have confidence in the truth of God's word. You have confidence uh, in that all of that is true, that God's promises are true, that Christ is who he says he is, and that what he says is true. Verse 19, the author is talking about having confident access to God. For whom? For those who are truly saved. Remember, to those listening here, they never had access to God. They had to have a high priest who only had access to God once a year as he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, sprinkled the blood on the altar for the atoning sins of the people. But now under the new covenant, 
These new believers, or at least those who have professed Christ, those who are truly saved, those who have come all the way in, now have continual access to God. Anytime that they close their eyes in prayer, they're in the throne room of God. Imagine how fabulous, how wonderful that would be to hear for people who never had that access. Verse 20 says, Then by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have confidence that Christ inaugurated us through the veil, that we now have access to God through that veil. Remember that veil was that thick, heavy curtain, right? And uh, at, at Christ's crucifixion, it tore from the top to the bottom. So there'd be no mistake that somebody took it from the bottom and ripped it in half. It was God who then tore the veil. The author of Hebrews says, just like Christ's flesh was torn, so the veil was torn. And because of Christ's sacrificial atoning death, we now have access to God through the veil or through Christ's atoning work. Direct access to God for all true believers was now available, and they were to come in with confidence, not fear and trembling like those on the edge of the mountain, but with confidence. Not confidence in themselves, but confidence in Christ. And then in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, again, we have confidence in who Christ is and what he has accomplished. So it's on the basis of these scriptural truths that there's a new way to have access to God that's been opened up through the sacrificial death of Christ. And we can now go in with confidence because what Jesus has accomplished through his new and living way. Remember, we said those words actually mean, right, the resurrection, right, the death and the resurrection, the new and the living way. And Christ goes in with us. He takes a place there where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Then in verse 22, then, he makes his appeal based on that truth. Notice what he says then in verse 22. Let us draw near. That's an invitation to all those who, were, who, were, uh, who had professed Christ. He's saying, let us draw near. You now have access to God. If you will just go all the way in, you have all of these things available to you. Based on what Christ has done, look at what God has done. Look at the, all that is there for you. Look at all the spiritual riches that you now inherit through Christ. Look at the access that you have to God. Continual, anytime. Look at the advocate that you have. Think that your sins had to be the, the atoning for your sins had to be repeated every year, year after year after year after year. But now, once and for all, those sins have been removed. So, on the basis of that, verse twenty-two, let us draw near. So being all in commands us to draw near, but don't just draw near. He tells us how we should draw near with a sincere heart, right? And in the full assurance. A sincere heart is a true heart. No false pretense. He's saying don't, don't say you're going to draw near, but because of some ulterior motive. You know, if I draw near, then I won't have as many trials in my life. If I draw near, then God will bless me and I won't have any problems in my life. Uh, if I draw near, then perhaps God will help me get this new job. Or if I draw near, he said, just draw near with a sincere heart. 
with a true heart. No ulterior motives. Quit trying to finagle God. Quit trying to treat God like a genie in the bottle who's just there to grant your every wish. Draw near with a sincere heart and in the full assurance that sincere heart, a true heart, is a heart without divided loyalties. And the full assurance of faith explains what a sincere heart also means. It's a heart that's anchored upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. What is the result of all of that? Verse 22, he tells us, a clean heart and a pure conscience. If you're all in, once you're all in by faith, you come with a pure conscience, which realizes that God has declared you not guilty because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And again, we spent considerable time in all of that, right? It doesn't mean that we were not guilty. We are justified or declared not guilty. There's not a person who stands before God who's not guilty. But thank God, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that now we have been redeemed and we are justified. We are declared not guilty. Then finally in verse 23, which is where we looked at last week, he says, because of that, based on that, based on that wonderful truth, based on the things that you should have confidence in, draw near to God. Here's how you draw. Here's the results of that. Verse 23, he begins to show you, and this is what it looks like when you do that. This is, these are the marks of someone who was genuinely saved. And one of those marks, he says, if you remember from last time, point number one, all faith means we, all in faith means we hold fast to our confession of hope. Because of what Christ has done, we are to draw near to him. And then once we draw near, we are to hold fast. That word in the original language means to hold with a firm grip. Like you're going to grab something and never let it go. Like you were clinging to that last rung on a ladder and there was a, a big precipice below you. You hang on to it for dear life. Hang on to your salvation in the good times and in the bad times. And you never let go. It means to take possession of something extremely valuable and then never letting it go. My friends, that's what saving faith looks like. And the author of Hebrews is saying... If you're genuinely saved, you will hold fast to your faith. You're all in. We cling to the truth of our salvation and this hope we have in Christ with every fiber of our bodies. We hold that truth dear in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls. And incidentally, this word is in the present tense, which means we keep holding on. We don't just hang on once and then let go and try and grab it again when things get really rough. No, we hang on to that faith and we never let it go, no matter what happens in our lives. We seize it and keep holding fast. Secondly, notice that we hold fast the confession of our hope. That word homologia in Greek means an open acknowledgement or a public testimony of our beliefs. We have, we have that very similar. That's like baptism, right? In baptism, we stand before the congregation and we give a public testimony of our faith in Christ. Right? We, we, we acknowledge, I am a Christ one. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want everybody to know that I am 
his son, I am his daughter. I want you all to know, I want to publicly declare that. He's not asking them to make another confession, but to cling to their confession without hesitancy, without doubt, without wavering in regard to what they've already made, to what they've already confessed. It means to openly, unashamedly profess Jesus Christ at every opportunity. Remember what Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed because of what Christ has done for me. I now have this earthen treasure, right? I now have this gospel treasure that I carry around with me. And I want others to know it as well. I want to share this with you. That's what true saving faith looks like. We draw near having access to God because what Christ has done. We hold fast. We hold fast to our saving faith together with fellow believers and then we confess. But we confess what? Or we confess better whom? The text tells us we confess the object of our hope. Right? The object of our hope. Which brings us to point two. All in hope means we hold fast without wavering. So these Christians have confessed Christ to be their hope of salvation. They're surrounded by people who want to persecute them. They're tempted to stop believing that God's promises for them were secure. They're tempted to walk away from the whole thing. They've made a profession, but now that things are getting a little rough, now that things are getting a little dicey, now that things aren't going my way, now that I can no longer shop in the marketplace, now that my kids have been kicked out of schools, now that I'm being called names and ostracized, Maybe I should just go back. It'd just be so much easier if I just let go of that profession of Christ and just go back, go back to the way of everybody else. And I could really not have to swim upstream my entire life. Wouldn't that be easier? The author of Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Don't walk away. Don't abandon your profession. Don't waver. Don't give in. Don't give up. Hold fast to your confession. Don't be like that generation which left Egypt, which was barely out of Egypt when they faced their first difficulty, and they were willing to forsake their redemption and return willingly back to bondage. The author of Hebrews is pleading with them here, nah, don't waver in your profession of faith, but instead prove the genuineness of your profession by never letting go, never wavering. That idea of holding on without wavering is the whole point of chapter 11. Those who held on without wavering. We looked at John chapter 8, 30. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 30 to 31, remember? If you continue in my word, then you are my disciple, or you are a true disciple, or you are my disciple for real, depending on your translation. How sad is it that many come to Christ and say they believe, and then the first instance of persecution, the first instance of hardship, or the first instance of a trial, they forsake their faith. They forsake their profession of faith and go back into the bondage from which they came. Which brings us to point number three. So point number one, I'm sorry, all in faith means we hold fast. Point number two means we hold fast without wavering. Point number three, all in hope is grounded in the promises of our faithful God. For he who promised is faithful. Do you see that in verse 23? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
Why should I keep on? Why should I hold on? Why should I not stop believing? Why should I continue to trust? The text tells us, because he who promised is faithful. And I took you to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, where it talks about this covenant where God the Father had with God the Son before time began. We call that the new covenant. Now we know what that is. Made in eternity past. You know, it's sometimes it's so easy for us to doubt that God might be faithful to us because we could be so unfaithful to him. We can't comprehend how he could still remain faithful to us when we waver and doubt. A lot like the Israelites in the wilderness. What the author of Hebrews is saying, your confidence is not based ultimately on the promises that God has made to you, but they're grounded in the promises he made to his son. You may doubt whether he'd fulfill those promises to you, but it's hard to fathom that he wouldn't honor his promises to his son. That's all your promises are grounded in. So again, my friends, chapter 10 is all about making a decision for Christ. It's all about being all in. It's highly evangelistic. This is the Really, the, he's, he's moving now to the point where we've got all this doctrine, and now he's saying, you need to apply it. Come, draw near. And when you do, this is what it will look like. And those who are genuinely saved, this is what it looks like. So now he continues then in verse 24. And he wants to show us another characteristic of a saved person. So let's look at verse 24. Let us hold fast, I'm sorry, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Here's point number one for your notes today. In verse 24a, true believers are united together. True believers are united together. Notice the word us, let us. Who is the us that the author of Hebrews is referring to? What we know from our context tells us from the verses we just looked at that the us are those who have been invited to Christ and all those who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's saying, let us, let us consider. He's demonstrating again what the marks of a genuine saving faith look like when they're lived out in the life of a true believer. He's saying, let us consider. That word consider means to think carefully, to focus intensely, he said, I want you to stop what you're doing, and I want you to consider what we should be doing and what it looks like to have genuine saving faith. I've already told you it means you cling to your confession of hope and you don't waver. And you remind yourself that it's grounded in the promises from God the Father to God the Son. But I also want you to do something with it. I want you to consider this. I want you to think carefully. I want you to focus intensely. We've already seen that word consider back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, when, they, when the author of Hebrews said, consider Jesus. Think carefully now. Focus intensely. Don't just think that this is some flippant decision. This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Who is Jesus and what he means to you? There is no greater question. There is no greater a dilemma that faces mankind and figuring out who Jesus Christ is. What he's done for you. 
The next tells us there, who, who are we to think carefully about or focus intensely here? In this verse, it tells us we're to focus on, notice it here, one another. We're to focus on one another. What this verse is telling us is that there's an inseparable link between those who have drawn near to Christ and to others who have drawn near to Christ. In other words, those who have truly drawn near to Christ will also draw near to others who have drawn near to Christ. It is inevitable that as you come to Christ, you will begin to seek others who have also come to Christ. One of the first things we see in genuine conversion is a hunger for God's word and a desire to be around God's people. And I, and I don't just mean around them occasionally, I mean around them as much as humanly possible. I remember when Cindy and I were first saved, we started going to church more and more, our kids began to question our sanity. Haven't you already been to church this week? Why are you going back again Wednesday? If you already went to adult Bible study, and then you did a second service in the morning, why on earth are you going back again at night? Or the infamous question, how much church do you need? But see, we both had this intense desire to be around God's people as much as possible. I remember when Cindy and I went to our first IFCA convention. It just happened to be held in Maryville. We were newly saved then. And we went there, and there were about six or 700 people filling up this convention hall, and they were singing great hymns, and the walls were just shaking. And we looked at each other, and we just thought, there's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now. We felt like we had a little glimpse of heaven with all the saints just singing these praises. It was wonderful. See, that's one of the marks of genuine salvation. That also means we should rightly question those who seem to be ambivalent or even apathetic about other believers and wanting fellowship together with them. That's one of those things. If that's one of the marks of genuine salvation, then we have to ask ourselves, well, then why wouldn't somebody want to be around God's people? Whether it's a question of genuine salvation or a lack of discipleship, or there's now an idol in their life that has moved them away from God's people, whatever that is, there's clearly a disconnect from what God's word says or one of the marks of genuine salvation. That is a desire to be around God's people as much as we can. Incidentally, this thing called life here now is temporal. It is temporary. But you know who you will be spending the, all of eternity? How long is eternity? Yeah, it's forever, right? It's a long, long time. Well, look around you, folks. These are the people that you will be spending all of eternity with. Other believers. Forever. And so one of the marks of genuine conversion is that we have this desire to be around God's people. Who think like us. Who share those values together. Who want to praise God. Who want to talk about spiritual things. Who want to encourage one another in the word of God. But it's not just an internal desire. We also have this desire in our own hearts, but we have a sense of responsibility for one another. Did you know that? Once you are truly saved, beloved, you have a responsibility to others who are saved. You're to carry their burdens. 
You're to weep when they weep and rejoice when they rejoice. You're to love one another, care for one another, nurture one another, encourage one another, sometimes exhort one another, admonish one another. I don't have time this morning to go through all the one another passages, but let me tell you, you have a responsibility to each other, to love each other. Once we're saved, we have this corporate responsibility. We must help others who stumble and falter. We must concentrate the needs on the needs of others and not just our own individual salvation. We live in such an individualistic society here that we think salvation, first of all, is the end of the journey. When it's not, it's the beginning of the journey. Salvation is the beginning. Then starts this thing called progressive sanctification where you draw, where, where God brings things and people in and out of your life to conform you more and more to the image of his son. And that starts the moment you're saved and it ends the day he calls you to heaven. But oftentimes in our society, we think salvation is all about us. What am I getting out of this? What about me? I'd rather not be around God's people today. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us that we've been placed into the body of Christ together for how long? Forever. Forever. We've been placed into the same body, given the same Holy Spirit, redeemed by the same blood of Jesus Christ, my friends. Beloved, look around you right now. Every single one of those who are truly saved are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are inseparably linked together forever. If you love Jesus, then you will have love for others who love Jesus. Those two are inseparably, inseparably linked. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. You keep your place in Hebrews. Let me just show you a couple passages here. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Now you remember the Sadducees had tried to trip Jesus up, right? But Jesus had silenced them. So the Pharisees, thinking, well, you know, we're a lot smarter than those Sadducees. We can, we can trip him up. So what do they do? Beginning in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Let's see if we could trip this guy up. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Notice that the lawyer is not asking for the greatest commandments. He's asking for the greatest commandment. Singular. Which one's the greatest? But Jesus said to him, not, he doesn't just give him one, he gives them two. Why? Because these two are inseparably linked together. Look at here. You said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This relationship determines this relationship. He said, on those two laws, hang all the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets are based on those two. But they're inseparably linked together. The Lord was teaching all of us that you cannot say that you love God and then not love those who love God. They go together. 
They're inseparably linked. Go to 1 John chapter 4, would you? 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we cannot manifest our love for one another whom we see, how can we ever say we love a God who we've never seen? That's John's point here. My friends, our love for Christ and his love for us is the root. Our love for one another is the fruit from that root. Christianity is not a solo sport, my friends. It was always designed from the very beginning by our loving God to be done in community. Like it or not, we need each other. We need each other. There are times when we go through things. There are times when we just need to call somebody who shares our values, who shares our hope, who shares our love of the Savior, and say, Lord, I, I need someone like that in my life to come pray with me, to listen to me, to encourage me. It was never intended that you would be saved and lock yourself away hoarding the treasure of the gospel all for yourself. It was always meant for you to live out your faith in the community of other believers. So point number one, true believers are united together. But what are we to be doing with all of this one another time together? We are to be provoking one another. You say, no problem, Pastor, I can do that. I've been practicing that one a lot. Point number two, true believers provoke one another. And you say, now why would I say that? That word stimulate or stir or spur is proximus, can be used either negatively or positively. You can provoke somebody in anger, right? Or you can provoke somebody. It's used in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. We don't have time to look at it today. But that's where Paul and Barnabas had their conflict over John Mark. There's a deep dispute. There was a, there was a provocation. That's the negative side of it. Here in our passage, it's used positively. The idea is that we know each other so well that we know how to build each other up and encourage each other. That we know each other so well that we know how to do that. We know how to speak to one another in a way that demonstrates compassion and encourages one another to be all in, to be all in faith, to be all in hope, never wavering, standing firm. But what are we to provoke one another to? Point number three, true believers provoke one another to love and good deeds. That word love is our word, agape. Agape love is the love of the will. It's the love in marriage. It's the love that says, I choose to love you. It's the love of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice. It costs me something to demonstrate agape love for you. Usually it costs me setting aside my own needs and desires to glorify God as I serve you. Agape love. 
It's sacrificial love, self-sacrificing love. It comes at a great cost. It's the kind of love that Jesus was talking about in John 13, 34. Let's look at that, shall we? The Gospel of John, verse 13. Jesus says this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, it's not new that we are to love God, Deuteronomy 6, 5, right? Love the Lord your God. It's not new that we should love one another, Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. But this love is to be modeled after Christ's love for us. It's sacrificial. It, it costs us something. And secondly, as part of the new covenant, it's manifested through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this commandment is given repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Let's look at just a few. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to flip through your sword drill real quick. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through what? Love, do what? Serve one another. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Keep moving to your right there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of what? Love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for whom? For one another and for all people, just as we do for you. Turn to Titus as you keep working your way to the right. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in Good deeds, love and good deeds, love and good deeds. And finally, 1 John chapter 3, our last one, verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed in truth. Again and again throughout the New Testament and in our passage today, we're called to love one another, provoke one another, encourage one another, motivate each other to love sacrificially and to good deeds. And again, these deeds are not the root and the, they are not the root. Our love for Christ, his love for us is the root. Our love for one another and our good deeds are the fruit of that relationship with saved by these things, but rather because we are truly saved, this is the fruit we naturally bear. 
If you're genuinely saved, you'll have love for one another. And you'll want to stimulate, encourage, provoke, if you will, one another to love and good deeds. That's how an oyster is made, right? From an irritant, a little grain of sand goes in there. The oyster supplies what's called the nacre. It surrounds it, kind of washes it over. And sooner or later, as it keeps wrapping around this irritant, this grain of sand inside, it forms this pearl, this beautiful, priceless pearl. Making something beautiful out of the very object that irritated it. The writer says, we need to do the same. Beloved, you need to be that piece of sand in each other's lives. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to provide the nacre of love. But if you're struggling with sin, I want you to know I'm here to help you. If you're defending your sin, I'm here to challenge you. And if you're camping in your sin, I'm here to admonish you. Because I love you. I don't want to see you be enslaved to your sin. So go ahead. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. Here's John Wesley's rule of conduct. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. It's pretty good. little way to look at that. My friends, these are the marks of genuine salvation. We are all in in our faith. We draw near with confidence, with sincere hearts, full of assurance. The result is a clean heart and a clear conscience. We're told to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering and confident that our God is faithful. And then as we've seen today as true believers, we're united together. We provoke one another to good deeds and to love. That's what it looks like when you're genuinely saved. We want to be around one another. You care about one another. You love one another. You stimulate, you provoke one another to love the good deeds that edify and encourage one another. This letter, again, was written to a congregation that contained some true believers and a congregation that contained those who had made a profession of faith that were not all in. And our body here today is the same, beloved. There are those in our midst today who truly know the Lord is their Savior, and there are those in our midst today who have made a profession of faith but are not yet all in. This chapter reminds us that it's decision time. That's not something new. We don't have time to look at all the passages. But in both the Old Testament and New Testament, it's decision time. To those, if you're already here today and you've never made that decision, or if you've put your toes to the, to the narrow gate and you've never went all the way in, I urge you today, Lead with you today. Make that decision for Christ. If you're here today, you're absolutely convinced of your salvation. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you desire to be around one another? Do you consider those that God has graciously united with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would they know that by the way that you love them? Provoke them to love sacrificially through your own example and to good deeds for one another. Those are tough questions, aren't they? For many of us here today, but certainly worth giving serious consideration to. Well, we'll finish up what that looks like next week, but for now, I want you to reflect on your love for all the one another's that are here with us today. Pray about how we can love them and provoke them to love and good deeds. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.